0: Well, it's good to be back here on the stage with you guys. Again, uh, it was a great time off I mean, we got away for those two days on our way back from Crazy Creek Resorts. Uh, we're just leaving. We're going to go to Revelstoke and have lunch, walk around, get some coffee. Really enjoyed the Saturday uh, afternoon. I rolled down my window. I heard this loud crack and I was like, oh, what was that? And then I rolled it down all the way and went to go roll it back up and the window did not want to go back up. And so we had to change our plans, put a plastic bag over the window, and um, drive back to Lake Country, extremely loud. We got to moose, and I was like, this is the worst ever. And so and I wanted a coffee, and I was like, what do I do? And then I was like, well, let's do the drive-through just for fun, uh, to kind of lighten the situation, because kids were upset. So then I had to lift up the plastic sheet, put my head through the window, and order my Tim Hortons coffee. And so uh, you should have seen the look that I got at the, the, the drive-through, they were spectacular. Some guy literally stopped and just stared at me. I was like, I just need my coffee, man. Uh, and so, But they didn't offer me any free donuts in the midst of our struggle, and so I'm never going back to Tim Hortons again. Uh, I'm just kidding. Anyways, uh, we are just closing up our Life of David series. And you might think, wow, that was really quick that we went through this. And you know what? There is a lot to unpack through this series. Um, the beauty of our network is that uh, there are sermons that were happening at the South and sermons that were happening at Highway 33. And they have touched on different spots in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And so if you're interested in hearing more from this series, and maybe different sections of uh, those books, you can go onto the website, willowparkchurch.com. Hit the media section, and you can see uh, other sermons from this series. And so, the resources that we use, you know what, as we go through series, I've been adding this kind of like resources that we've used to the series. If you're interested, you know what, and to continue to read uh, into, you know, and to learn more about uh, the life of David. I used 1 Samuel, Looking for a Leader by John Woodhouse. 2 Samuel, Your Kingdom Come by John Woodhouse. Some of these, they're obviously not like, I'm going to sit down and read this in a day. These are some... Uh, like uh, commentaries, but those first two actually, they're, they're actually really nice. They break it up really easy, and they're almost like sermon-esque kind of um, chapter, how they break down the chapters. And so that's actually like a fun read, uh, and good read for you if you'd like that. And then David the Great by Mark Rutland and there too. So if you're interested, you want to write those down, you want to take a picture, you want to buy some more books off Amazon, please go ahead. Um, this is not a plug for Amazon, uh, I don't—you can buy wherever you want to buy. And so, anyways, how do we end this series now? How do we finish off our Life of David series? I mean, I could speak on David on the run and his experience in the caves. We could talk about him becoming king. And this is what I was thinking about this week. How do we close this off? And I landed on 2 Samuel 12, which works well as we prepare to take communion today. Uh, and so this topic doesn't, you know, maybe just usually have its own space in a sermon— But the reality is this act that we're going to talk about, what the Lord's calling us to do daily, uh, is what we see David do in 1 Samuel 12. Now, 1 Samuel 12 obviously comes right after 1 Samuel 11. But what happened in 1 Samuel 11 was David, he commits some of the worst uh, acts of his life in 1 Samuel 11. He commits adultery, which leads to a pregnancy, then leads to him, him murdering Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband, and so for the, actually the last three stories, and, or the last three chapters in Second Samuel, uh, in Second Samuel, before 2 Samuel 12, David has actually been using his position not really, for, you know, for justice and righteousness for all people. He hasn't really been helping, you know, the people out. It's kind of turned that he's looking a little bit more out for himself, his desires, and the things that he wants. And so chapter 12 leads him to be confronted by the prophet Nathan, and David— after David had been caught in sin, and this is, we're going to see how David responds to sin. We're going to see how David responds uh, to this confrontation. So, Second Samuel 12. Is about a year after David's affair with Bathsheba. And we know this because the child from that affair has just been born. And back in those days, it took nine months, you know, for a couple when they had sex and for the birth of a baby. Uh, It's still for today, obviously, nine months. I've had four kids. I personally actually haven't had four kids. But I've been there cheering my wife on uh, as she's had them. And so, Nathan comes. As the obedient prophet that he was, he came to David And he began to speak. And he brought a situation before the king. And this story is well known. that Maybe we forget its true nature sometimes. But an important role for a king was to administer justice among his people. And it seemed that Nathan now was bringing this case to David for the king to consider. How are you going to rule against this case? And so before we enter that, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together and we can, Lord, read through this this life of David, Lord, as we can read through this story in 2 Samuel 12 of when David is confronted by Nathan and, Lord, what it means for us, Lord, what we can glean from it, what we can learn from it. Lord, and I pray that it prepares our hearts for communion today. Lord, I pray that what we hear today, Lord, what we we're, will resonate with us today, will prepare for what we're about to do at the end of the sermon. Lord, we thank you that your word is alive, Lord, that it pierces, that, Lord, that it teaches, and Lord, that it shows us, Lord, Things, Lord, that we're going through right now, where we, we need your help out. And so Lord, we pray that the sermon resonates with our hearts, Lord, as we prepare for communion. Amen. All right, Second Samuel 12:1 to3 says, "The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, "There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. This confrontation is not initially direct. Nathan comes, he starts to tell the story. He starts, you know, I say, this is what's happened. David, what do you think we should do? And Nathan's telling him this story of this rich man stealing this and killing this poor man's sheep. And perhaps comfortable that he'd gotten away with everything. Maybe he's feeling, you know, positive about his interactions with prophets this far. David, he naively and unsuspectingly, uh, in that parable, he doesn't know that it's talking about him. And the parable underscores the depravity of David's actions by contrasting the state of the victim and the state of the perpetrator. So the rich man right had a very large number of sheep and cattle, while the poor man had just this one little lamb that was like a child to him, just like, his, like one of his own. As one commentator puts it, the one who has practically everything, David, takes away the only treasured possession of the one who has next to nothing. So this presents, right, the rich man as a despicable character. His acts are deplorable. Why would he do such a thing? And so Nathan's parable is an ingenious way of getting the king, you know what, to level judgment against himself. David, he was once a shepherd. He resonates with this. The image of a poor man with a lamb would have resonated with him and led him to identify actually with the poor man. David thought he was the poor man in this story rather than the rich one. And so there are so many ties between this story and what just happened in 11 when David took Bathsheba. First, the visitor came to the rich man, creating the circumstances for his crime. In the previous chapter, Bathsheba and then Uriah came to David. And their coming created the situation in which David acted so wickedly. Second, now we see a man who took. The rich man thought it was be a pity to take anything from his vast flocks, from everything that he had, from all the number of sheep that he had. So he took the little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man. So David will be forced to recall that he took Bathsheba. Third, the rich man not only took the ewe lamb, but he killed it. This action being hidden under expression, he prepared it. Now, how is David going to respond to this? He's heard this story. He thinks he's the poor man. He doesn't think he's the rich man. Now, how does David respond to what what he's heard? (coughs) David burned with anger, it says in 1 Samuel 12, 5, against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. He had no pity. So Nathan, right, he's created this beautiful story. It hits David on many personal levels. And it draws David in by making him think that he's the poor man, right? And David demands repayment by fourfold. As it was custom by Israel law, if you stole someone's sheep, you had to give them four sheep. That was custom. That's what had to happen. And on top of that, though, David says, this person should die. These are pretty harsh words. Turbulent events have happened in the previous chapter, and we see no display of this type of emotion from David. He was disturbingly calm, and he was disturbingly calculating, even when Joab anticipated that he might be angry. But now that there is nothing calm or calculating about his judgment of the rich man and his conduct, David's like, this rich man, he must die, and he must pay them back for sheep. David, he even invokes the name of God. He says, this is the first seems like the first time that, even, that David's thought about the Lord in a long time. He says, by the living God, he pronounced the death sentence on this rich man. It's like, by the Lord, this man must die. David is so worked up. He goes above and beyond what the law says. Because the law was simply, right? four sheep, for the one, not death. And David knew the law. This is not what justice called for. It's what David's anger called for. And this is what anger does. This is what sin does. This causes us to go above and beyond our normal response to a situation. David is deeply troubled. And this is what, it, like I said, sin does. It causes us to be troubled and it causes us to respond in anger. It messes with our emotions. It separates us from God. David is highly invested into what he thinks is a case brought to him and that he should be making a ruling for. But now, the curveball of the story. First Samuel 12, 6 says this. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I always wonder like how long the pause between this line and the next would have been, right? David just angered, this person must pay four sheep back and he must die. And then Nathan's like, you're the man. And he just that awkward long pause. those awkward moments, that awkward turtle moment, you're like, what's a turtle moment? You know when you're having maybe an argument with somebody, you're talking with somebody, and you're getting really heated and upset, and then they say, well, you did this, and you're like, yeah, I did that, and your neck starts to shrink a little bit, just like a turtle's head goes back into its shell. I imagine that's what it was. David's like, this, 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 and then you're the man. David's like, oh, yes, I am the man. And so the conviction was inescapable. David's actions inexcusable. Because David had condemned himself to death, actually by his own mouth. The rich man in Nathan's story was David. His flocks and herds were David's considerable possession, particularly his numerous wives. The poor man was Uriah, the lamb was Bathsheba. David had taken Bathsheba, he had killed Uriah, and he said, Nathan, to David, you are the man. Then it continues. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. Real shocking news in this story. Everyone sins. We all fall short. It's what you do when you sin or when you are confronted with your sin that actually makes the difference between life and death. See, what happens next is what makes David a man after God's own heart. It makes David, as they describe, a man after God's own heart. Because David, he's going to confess his sins in all of its ugliness. He's going to throw himself on the mercy of God. He's saying, I'm going to lay it all down at God's feet. This is what actually makes David different from Saul. David and Saul had both sinned, and badly. And it's not like Saul's sin has been a lot worse. If anything, David's sin was much worse, but reality is sin is sin, and it happens and it separates us no matter what it is. But what Saul was, when Saul was confronted, he rationalized his disobedience, and he passed the blame. But David confesses his sin and throws himself on the mercy of God. There are some things that we do when we're exposed in our sin. Maybe it's when someone confronts you. Maybe it's when your consciousness or your conscience smites you or whatever. But there's all. there seems to be these four ways that we react when things happen in our life, when sin happens. One of the things we might do is this. We might hide our sin. You know, we deny it. We might admit that something, you know, we had troubled us in the past, but, you know, it's not anymore. I'm actually over it now. I'm sure we have, you know, it's, there's maybe we've had those secrets in our lives where we can remember, oh, why did I try to hide that? Second thing we might do is we might rationalize it. We might be like, we explain why our sin is actually not really that bad. It's not that bad. I've only done this. I'm not really hurting anybody. You know, it's such a small little thing. Or everybody's doing it. Or, you know, I can't help it. My desires are just a bit too strong. Maybe they... Sometimes we might blame shift. You know, it's not really my fault. Uh, It's not me. You have no idea what he's done to me. You have no idea how upset they made me. Like, I had to respond the way I did. Like, it deserved a punch in the face. Like, um, and so we respond, we shift the blame by, you know, I I only did it because they did this to me. This is the life with kids right now. He did this, They did that. It's like, oh my goodness. And so this is flashbacks right now as I even say that. Each of those three is what Saul did. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden, but it's not what David chooses to do. He chooses to do the fourth thing. He chooses to repent. David, he recognizes his sin, and then he we know he recognizes his sin by what he says, but we also get this psalm, Psalm 51, which gives you maybe probably the clearest picture of what true gospel-centered repentance might look like. So, we're going to turn there, we're going to read this a little bit, and we're just going to talk about it, and then you know what, we're tonight, tonight, oh my goodness, first day back, here we go. This morning, this morning, we're going to take communion, and I hope this prepares our hearts for communion. So this psalm gives you the anatomy, like the internal workings of this gospel-centered repentance. Now, this is not like systematic theology. It doesn't have this real tight outline. This psalm is maybe like the Bible's version of jazz. You know what? It it's just kind of like, just going with it, filling the flow. Because it's simply this. It's a prayer from David's heart. He's being utterly honest with what he's done. He's just laying it all down at the Lord's feet. He's being, this is a sign of someone who's repenting. And we can't systematically theologize that one. So the title of the psalm states this, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 51, you should see that title there, that this, this, in, this title is right there. So we know, hey, this is what David did when he, he was confronted by Nathan. This is what he's saying to the Lord. This is what he said. This is how we know he was repentant. This is how we know he said, I'm sorry, Lord, for what I've done. Here we go. Psalm 51. And it begins, and says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transge- transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from your sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. So, right away, what is the basis of David's play that we see in this? Where is his hope? In the mercy of God. He's laying it all down right there. It's not in any of his past righteousness. He's not like, God, you know what? For on the whole of my life, I've been a really good king. Remember that whole David and Goliath thing? Like, that was me. Like, I have a little bit of good capital saved up in the bank from how awesome I was. He doesn't say that. He doesn't try to rationalize it and make it seem like on a scale of things, you know, my sin isn't that bad, even though it was pretty bad. And so he's not like, God, you have no idea how hard it is to be king. (laughs) Like, he's not like, you know, my other marriages, they're not going so well. Like for three straight weeks, every night, all my wives have been complaining to me about having headaches. Like, and so he's not saying any of this. He's not rationalizing, you know, what he's done. He's not trying to bargain with God and make some promises for his future. You know, it's like, God, you know, I'll do better next tomorrow. He's not asking God for forgiveness on credit. God, I need you to let me off this one. In return, I'll make up to you in the future. I'll be a, a, the best husband and the follower that you've ever seen. He doesn't do any of that. David simply, he's just open and lays it all down. He puts all of his hope in, his, in everything he's going through in one place, in the mercy of God. Because he only has one hope, and God's mercy. So here's the question. Is God's mercy great enough that you can make it the entire basis of your hope? Are you okay just laying it all down there and saying, God, I know you're merciful, and I know you, you have good for me, I know you love me, and I know you care for me, and I know what I've done is wrong, and I trust you. Are you laying it all down at his feet? Or are you trying to rationalize with him? Or are you trying to cover it up? The psalm continues. Psalm 51, 49 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you are in right, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. So right out of the way, it's like, is that really true? Really, David? Like, you've only sinned against God? Like, I really feel like, what about Bathsheba? Like, it seemed like you sinned against her. Like, what about Uriah? Like, it definitely looks like you sinned against Uriah. I mean, he's not alive anymore, but you know, you did something to him. So this is really deep what David is saying here. It's the heart of the whole thing. There's two important reasons why David says this. Against you, God. Because he realizes his sin began against God. All of our sin is ultimately directed at God. We're not satisfied with what God has given us. We don't trust God to take care of us. We go around God. We go outside the boundaries to get what we want, right? David got onto the roof. He saw Bathsheba and he wanted Bathsheba. He already had, I don't know how many wives, but enough wives, really. But he saw something and he wanted, and he's like, this wasn't good enough. I want that now. And he's saying, I'm not satisfied with what you've given me, God. I'm not satisfied with what I have. I'm not satisfied with all my sheep and all my eh, lambs and being the king. I'm not satisfied with any of that. So he realizes at the beginning, his sin began against God. Second, David realizes God was the most important one he offended. The most important one he offended. Number one on the list. What he'd done to Uriah, hideous, despicable. Not right. But what he did to God, a bit worse, believe it or not. And this might be hard to see, but this is precisely what is missing in our repentance sometimes. We're always focused on what our sin has done to others, but we rarely think about how much of an insult it is to God. We feel the pain because of what it hurt done to others and what it's done to ourselves. but a true repentance is recognizing, oh Lord, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'm so sorry how this might have hurt you, or how this hurt you. David is overwhelmed with this truth at this point. He says, Against you, you only. In the repetition of you, you in the Hebrew, it actually shows this intensity of emotion. He's like, You, God, you, after all that you have given me and what you've shown me, I forsook you. You, God, you, that's intensity. When was the last time you were emotional about maybe what your sin has done to God? Not that you cry because it made you feel bad or embarrass you, but because of what it done has done against God. David, he says in this section, he's just like, this is just how I am. He's like, I, I, was, I was born like this. I don't have to practice it. I'm just actually, I'm pretty good at sinning. He's like, he's owning it. My behavior was not this one-off exception. He's like, this is just who I am from birth. You didn't catch me at a bad moment. That's just the way I am. I was brought forth in iniquity and I was born with sin in my heart. He's like, I'm a deeply flawed individual. He's just laying it all down there. Lord, I am so sorry. I I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I've fallen short. And I look back, you know, on my life as a kid. As five-year-old Jeremy, you know what? I would wake up nice and early. You know, I wasn't sitting down at the table as a five-year-old at 6 a.m. in the morning, you know, at an ungodly hour. um, And that ungodly at that time, it felt to me, um, or to my parents. And I wasn't just saying, oh, Lord, I surrender more of my life to you at five years old. My parents were waking up when I was getting up at six o'clock because they were afraid of what I might do at six o'clock by myself as five-year-old. There's been times that I've shot bottle rockets out of the window. Yes. It, was it dangerous? A million percent. Did I catch something on fire in the house? I don't know. Uh, you know Google it and see. Um, but there, I, I'm not, it was imperfect. From a young age, I'd fallen. I'd, I'd done things, you know, at a five-year-old, I was, yes, pure as, as a kid, but you know what? I needed Jesus. He continues, David, let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your holy spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David knows that God's intention for him is this. It's good. And this is huge. Sometimes when we sin, sometimes when we've fallen short, sometimes when we've done something that we feel, you know what, is too big, we feel that it's permanently disqualified us. I, I'm, the Lord can't forgive me for that. And then we take ourselves away. Then we don't come to him. Then we don't come to his feet. Then we, when we don't do that, we actually are thinking that God is not good. When we come to him, when we've messed up, we are saying, Lord, I know you are good, I know you will look after me. I know you will deal with me justly, and I trust you. Now, when you sin, I'm not saying it's not painful. How many of you broke a bone? Broken a bone in your lifetime here? Yes, we can raise hands. It's okay. Uh, I've broken a bone. I've torn ligaments. You know, when you break your bone at that moment, what did you say? I actually don't want know. to know what you say. So, <laughs> but I'm not sure it was like, oh, pfft. Yay, Jesus, I broke my leg into two. I rejoice in the pain and the Lord. this feels so good. But how God wakes you up, people who can't feel pain have things happen to them that destroy them that they'll never know about. Broken bones of your soul, your broken heart is God's way of waking you up. Conviction and guilt, they're terrible and painful. Yes, and they feel not great, but not as terrible and painful and destructive as unchecked sin in your life. So you don't resist it because the life-saving mercy of God, the voice calling out to you, pointing you, pointing out your sin, we don't want to resist it. God's goal for you is your deliverance, not your destruction. It is your exaltation, not your condemnation. God, he's looking out for you. He wants you to come to him. Because every word of this psalm, it cries out for Jesus. And we need someone who can put away our sin. How could that happen? Not through a lamb, but Jesus did that. By life, by the life, by living the life, his death put it away forever. We need someone who could create in us a clean heart and a love for God and, re- and renew a right, willing spirit within us. And where can we learn to love like that? Well, we're gonna learn to love like that through Jesus, through him coming. I'm just gonna call off the worship team here and we're gonna partake in communion now. All right, my son. So it sounds like a broken record, but the gospel is the one thing that will change us. The only way we ever learn to love God is seeing His beauty and learning of His love for us is by remembering the gospel. The steadfast love of Jesus is the only thing that renews a right spirit within us. It's the only thing that can change our hearts. It's the only thing that we that can mold and shape us. It's the thing that we are called to do to come to at His feet, laying everything down, saying, "Lord." Forgive me for what I've done.